Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to this place and for calling us to your side and, Lord, for ransoming us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would have our eyes open to the world around us and that we might not be so much over and against it, but, Lord, that we might engage it with the gospel uh, for your glory, but also for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A little bit of a dangerous class today. Uh, but that's because uh, I'll be doing a wedding next week and then I'll be with the choir at choir camp. So if you're mad, see you in three weeks. Um, um, uh, it's, it's a lot to, to bite off, and, and I was very hesitant to do it, but I, it's sort of in your face. And so I want this to be a little bit of a conversation. Please do come back uh, at me. And I don't want to spend a lot of time doing diagnosis, which I'm very good at. Uh, I had a doctor in Beaufort who was a very capable doctor, but he used to sort of go through and say, well, this is what's wrong, this is what's wrong, this is what's wrong. And at the end, he would say, well, if I prescribed you this, do you think you'd feel better? I'd say, I don't know, you tell me. You're the doctor. Yeah, uh, so uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time uh, saying this is what's wrong with the world, uh, and, uh, but I do want to spend a lot of time talking about what that means for us as Christians and what that means for us as, as the church. Uh, the world is constantly changing. Uh, you know, with the com- coming of modernity, uh, it went without saying that we no longer live in, in a Christian era. Christendom is gone. Uh, but even in the United States, we were sort of the last holdouts uh, to have uh, at least a sphere of influence as Christians when it came to things like public policy. And the debate was always centered around things in the public square, and religion had very much a place, for, had a place in the public square. Uh, but that uh, is becoming more and more uh, a closed uh, square as we become more individualistic, and uh, as our nation changes uh, with the ebb and flow of what's going on in the world around us. Uh, I still think there's some truth to Peter Berger's um, description of the United States. Uh, Peter Berger, uh, the great sociologist at Boston University, uh, who's German, said that um, that the most religious nation in the world is India. That's just a given. It actually is. And the most secular nation in the world is Sweden. And he said, America is a nation populated by Indians and governed by Swedes. And uh, I think that there is a lot of truth to that. And, and I'm not, actually today we're not going to talk about any sort of public policy issues, but I want to talk about what the public square looks like and uh, some really terrible myths that people are buying into in the world today that really have become gospel. People think this is the end-all, be-all. And so out of the gate, I'm going to show you my hand. Uh, the three um, idols that I would say exist in the world right now are... And these are of paramount importance to individuals. Self-realization, self-determination, and self-fulfillment. You can talk about anything else, but if you get in the way of anybody's self-realization, self-determination, or self-fulfillment, you'll get mown down. Uh, basically, that is exactly, well, not basically, that, that is what will happen. And so I've been thinking, okay, how... Do I engage people who talk about Christianity and say, well, Christianity is just getting in my way? Right? It's, it's, it's either a damper or, or whatever it is. And funny enough, uh, if you've read some of Larry Taunton's stuff, uh, Larry Taunton was trying to figure out why 
kids were no longer Christians in college. And he did something that actually no one, no one has done. He actually talked to college students. And, and what uh, they said was that they were receiving a confused message. And one of the guys that I thought was the most interesting, he was the head of whatever the secular humanist society was at Penn. And he said that he grew up in the church and he had this wonderful youth minister that he really liked and still really respected and did a lot of Bible studies and things like that. And then the new youth minister came in and the Bible studies kind of went by the wayside and it became more about sort of flashy kind of stuff and and gimmicky kind of stuff. And he just felt like he was getting all these mixed messages about Christianity and he just said, it's just... It's just too much. This is, this is for the birds. Intellectually, this is just not working for me at all. And indeed, that's what you hear a lot of, is that Christianity works in this period of life, but not in this period of life. So a lot of people who are in college will say things like, well, I was in youth group, involved in young life and focus, or whatever it was in high school. Uh, college Christianity really didn't jive with what my agenda was. And, uh, but I look forward to getting back to the church when I get married and have kids. Might have heard that uh, a, couple time, a couple times. And so uh, the church is just sort of one option that's out there in order to lead, lead this uh, holistic uh, life. But starting with self-realization, uh, I mean, that's part of... Uh, some of these things are not... Most of these things are not bad in and of themselves. It's how they're used. And so all of us at some point in time uh, have to kind of come to grips with, with who we are. We had dinner with somebody the other night, and, uh, and they said that uh, at some point in college they'd gone off to some far-fetched place like they spent a year in Seattle or some nonsensical place. And, um, and I said, what were you doing in Seattle? And, and they said, uh, I was trying to find myself. Right? Uh, after I graduated from college, uh, I moved to New Orleans. Uh, I said I was trying to find myself, but I was looking for some, for some other things um, other than myself. Uh, and so uh, a lot of people have gone through that, and I do think that there's, a, especially in the world that we live in where students are going to college longer and longer, which means that prolongs their adolescence. Right? The job market being what it is, you sort of look around and say, who wants to get a master's in English? Sounds good, right? Uh, so that's going to prolong adolescence, and so there's less time for you to sort of realize uh, who you are, and you grow up later. And so there is some work that has to be done in order to realize uh, who you are, and it's an angst of the human condition. Uh, we all are still trying to figure out uh, who we are at our very core. Uh, marriage has a very good way of ferreting this out, uh, when uh, I used to see the frustration in my parents' eyes when they would ask me, why did you do that? And my very insightful answer was, I don't know. <laughs> and I thought that I would grow out of that. And now Lauren says, why did you do that? I don't know. You, you, don't, really, you don't really outgrow it. Uh, and so you're, there's a constant search for self-realization but where the world gets it wrong is that finding out who you are does not begin with you. Finding out who you are does not begin with you. A wonderful story illustrating this is from John's Gospel, chapter 4, when Jesus encounters the woman of Samaria at the well. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, 
How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you better? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will be in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me that all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out, to the, out of the town and were coming to him. It was a lot. This woman had lived her entire life uh, in this village, or at least her married life, uh, multiple husbands. And in the ancient Near East, this is not a good thing. That's why she's out in the middle of the day drawing water. Uh, when do you go and draw water? First thing, right? You go first thing and draw water from the well. And not only is it a practical thing, but you go and draw water and you have your chores like washing your clothes, and the women are around the well, and what do they talk about? Local gossip. This woman. Right? So she avoids them altogether and goes out in the heat of the day, in the middle of Samaria, and that's when she draws water. That's when she does all of her work, when she knows that nobody will be here. Now, here's the thing about this woman. She knows who he is. She knows, I'm sorry, she knows who she is. She, she doesn't need any help uh, someone saying, uh, look, uh, here's the shape uh, that you are in because every day of her just day in and day out existence, even the most mundane of tasks is a reminder of her brokenness and her identity. Now, you might say, well, why doesn't she get out of the town? And, and a, She can't. She doesn't have the means to do it. In fact, uh, her subsistence seems to be with this man that uh, she relates to as her husband, uh, but is in fact uh, not uh, her husband, uh, who is exploiting her. Right? She's being a woman to him, and he's providing for her financially and for her day in and day out living, uh, and she's stuck. So not only is this woman talked about and gossiped about, and I'm sure that she could look back in her life and say, I wish I'd made some different choices. But what good does that do? Because this is where she is. She's stuck. And here is Jesus who tells her everything about herself. But her reaction is very strange. She doesn't run back into the city 
in order to avoid him. But she runs back in the city to do what? Come and see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. I mean, you can imagine everyone looking out, looking at one of us like, we know everything you've done. Right? So, what's so miraculous about that? Except there was a change in this woman from her encounter with Jesus at the well and that he encounters her in such a way and he's engaging her as eye to eye, which wasn't done in, in those days. Uh, being uncomfortable about being a woman with a man at a well, but of all women, she, I guess she would be okay uh, because of her past experiences. But... Uh, that he would look in her eye and there would be a sense of validation, not an approving of what she has done in her life, but her worthness. Her worthness that uh, do you realize that no matter how far gone you are, that you are my treasure. Uh, You're the one who I have come down from heaven in order to ransom and to save you from the life that you've lived. Now, this doesn't mean that she goes forward and says, my life is great now because she still is having to deal with the echoes of her past. But the way that she deals with herself and the way that she reckons with herself, that identity is for the birds. She no longer looks in the mirror and says, I'm the woman who has done thus and such. But I'm a new creation. In spite of the fact that all of it is true, uh, Paul says uh, to the Corinthians, he goes through this fairly long list of, of all these awful deeds, which I'm not going to recount. You can say all these awful deeds that are kind of, well, not, they are graphic. And then Paul says, so were some of you. Now, the funny thing is, is that that didn't mean that they still didn't struggle, that they still weren't reminded of their past, but what they had now was a new identity. But what it took for them to have that new identity, to understand who they were, was not introspective, not to look in on themselves and say, okay, how can I get myself out of this situation? I mean, most of us in here are not in the situation that this woman is in, whatever the equivalent uh, might be. We have a sordid past or we have some bad dealings with people. Uh, Most of us, uh, regardless of who you are, uh, day in, day out, there are times when we wish that we were somebody else. Now, I wish that we uh, were, I mean, for the longest time, as shallow as this is, I would have killed to have been six feet tall. <laughs> just just two and three quarter more inches. That's all I'm asking for. Uh, and, and being frustrated that that was never going to happen, but me thinking if I was a little bit taller, things would be a little bit better for me. Not at all. Uh, not at all. But all of us want to relate to one another based on some projected or perceived identity that is really not who we are and we relate to one another on that level, you objectify the human being. You rob them, bless you, of their worthness right? that God has imputed to them through what Jesus Christ has done. And so when it comes to self-realization, it takes God and an outside intervention to help us see who we really are. We're more alive and human in Christ. You're actually more human as a Christian than you are apart from him. You're more who God designed you to be in him than you are apart from him. And God uses several means in order to be able to accomplish this. Of course, his Holy Spirit. But one of the things that's happened in the whole process of self-realization 
is that there's been a large abdication by the community and by parents, the family, in helping people realize who they are. It's been pretty much hands-off. Now, some of that is just because of circumstance. It used to be there was this fascinating study done uh, that even people, it was around World War II, right before the outbreak of World War II, that even people uh, who married other folks that they had never met before in New York City, over 70% of the couples that got married, although they had never met, lived within a 10-block radius of one another or grew up within a 10-block radius of one another. Indeed, a lot of you in this room, if you married somebody from your hometown, like you married somebody that you grew up with, who you knew, and your parents were a part of the dating and the courting, and their, her parents were a part of it too, and, and your family, and you were friends with a brother and things. Now, that has its complications, right? Uh, Lauren and I did not grow up together, but she wanted to get married in my hometown because she thought it was cute. And, and it is, uh, rolling hill, horse country right at the foot of the Blue Ridge. And she liked the fact that there were all of these vineyards now springing up in this area of Virginia. Uh, and she liked to go out and do the tastings and all that. And there were a couple in particular that I would not touch. And she's like, why won't you do the tasting? And I said, because this used to be a hog farm. And um, I said, so oink, oink, have at it. But, but I grew up in a very small town. And so we were having lunch one day at the local Greasy Spoon. And Betty, the waitress, walked up to take her order. And I hadn't seen her in a long time. And she, was, she said, I heard about the engagement. And I was talking to Nick, the owner. And we're going to shut down the restaurant for the day. And it's going to be great. And Lauren says, what? is there an expectation that Betty, the waitress, is going to be? Yes, you heard it. Like, I mean, whether she's invited or not, she and Nick and George, the cook, and Diana, who works in the morning, like, they're going to be there. They're just going to be there. And um, we didn't get married in my hometown. Uh, <laughs> Betty, Betty was not there. Uh, but there's something really wonderful and, and beautiful about that because, uh, as uh, Jacques Maritain said, uh, community exists for the rescue of person, right? And that's a biblical idea of community, that community exists for the rescue of person, which means that it's the community's job to help somebody realize their full potential, which is ultimately in Jesus Christ, but to help them understand who they are. And in the world that we live in, basically what we tell them is that, and you can listen to my sermon again this morning, is that basically whatever floats your boat, accumulate power, um, accumulate uh, the ability to uh, influence, uh, accumulate uh, money, uh, whatever it is, and you're in. Right? That's what you want to do. And so what do you say to the guy who says, I want to be a mechanic? Right? And, and very talented. Uh, what normally happens, I say, oh, well, you're, go to college first, and then after college, if you want to go do that, then you can go do that. Right? And so college has become less about... Um, you know, and college used to be sort of like an insurance policy. Like it was meant to be an investment that would pay off through the years because you would go and study what you would ultimately do. And now it's like a safety net. Like unless you go to college, life is over for you. There are all kinds of statistics about income and things like that. Uh, but I know a lot of friends who have gone off to law school and are miserable and have said law is a really expensive hobby. And, and just... And, I was playing golf one time, this is a very funny story, with a guy out in Hawaii. And um, 
we were out there, and he said, well, what are you, I'm, I'm training to be a minister, and he was about 75, and he said, you know, my whole life, that's all I've ever wanted to do is to go to seminary and be a preacher. And I tried to convince him it wasn't too late, and he kind of hemmed and hauled about it. I said, well, what do you do? And he looked at me and sort of smiled and said, I judge beauty pageants. And he did. He actually judges Miss America. He's one of the standing judges. And I was like, it's a pretty good gig. Um, you work once a year. I mean, he does the state circuit too, but anyway. But how many people have this longing in their heart, especially when it comes to vocation, uh, because they did uh, what they thought they were supposed to do, and rather than the community rallying around them and helping them realize their potential and say, here's uh, who you are, uh, we're going to bless you in this, this is where your gifts lie, uh, have told them, well, kind of do this, this, and this. That's one of the reasons why we have a clergy problem in the church is because students would graduate from high, uh, college and go see the bishop, and the bishop would say, well, you need some real-life experience. Come back, and there's... It's good to have real-life experience, but the number of people who went on to graduate school or got involved in some other business and got married and had kids, it was going back to seminary was too much. It was just simply uh, too much. And so they live with this nagging regret uh, because the community hasn't rallied around them and said, uh, your full potential is in Jesus Christ, and what has he called you and equipped you to do? Rather than leaving us... Uh, to ourselves. And that's often what happens when it comes to self-determination. And the Bible talks a lot about what happens when you are self-determined and you're left to your own devices. Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. What happens? The father actually lets the young son go. He doesn't put up a fight. He gives him everything he wants. And he doesn't get perspective until he sees the pig slop. And even then, he comes up with this harebrained scheme as to how he might get back in to his father's household. What we find in real determination when it comes to the Bible is that the only person who is actually self-determined in a way that is perfect is God himself. So right before Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, he tells the parable of the lost sheep. Remember, there's a shepherd and he has 99 sheep. And the one decides he's going to do what he wants to do. And he wanders off. And what does the shepherd do? He goes after the one who was lost. God is the only one who is self-determined. And when left to our own devices, we're sunk. We're completely and totally sunk. Now, that doesn't mean... That doesn't mean that people aren't given enough leeway in order to pursue uh, their hopes uh, and their dreams. But if you love somebody and you're close enough, uh, you know when you know that is, uh, that's a danger zone. You know it. And so the property of our God is to go after them, right? The fault in the parable of the prodigal son is that there's one in that the different the two parables that Jesus tells before are the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. The lost sheep, the shepherd goes after the sheep. The lost coin, the old woman uh, turns the house upside down looking for the coin. Uh, but what doesn't happen to the parable of the prodigal son? Nobody goes after him. And everybody listening to Jesus tell this story would have known exactly whose job it was to go after the young son. The pharisaical older brother. That's whose job it was 
and yet he was content to stay in his comfortable living and uh, earning uh, some righteousness rather than uh, putting away uh, his own dreams and ambitions and going after his younger, younger brother who had left uh, the ranch. And so realize where one self-realization, self-fulfillment, and then, uh, I'm sorry, self-determination, and then self-fulfillment. Uh, I preached about it this morning. I'm not going to go into it. Um, but the world has gotten pretty crazy in, in terms of uh, what will bring about a complete and whole and total self. It just has. Um, I don't have to give any examples because there are, are lots of them. Uh, and for some of us in this room, when we hear the things on, I, I listen to a lot of NPR because I'm an Episcopalian, and um, <laughs> I have a tote bag and everything. And um, uh, I, I listen to these things, and, and it doesn't make me mad. It just breaks my heart. And it is uh, amazing, but we live in an era because there is no... Judgment. Remember, judgment's not always a bad thing, especially when it comes to the sheep who's wandered off or the one who is going off and doing something they ought not to do. Uh, but basically what the world says is if it makes you happy, then who am I to get in the way? Right? We live in a complete laissez-faire environment where the people will say, well, I may not like what's going on there, but who am I to stand in the way of that person's self-fulfillment, self-determination, and self-realization. Let me tell you, I give you permission that if I'm going off the reservation, if my children are going off, I'll make let Lauren speak for herself, uh, but feel free to intervene. Uh, feel free to say, stop. And right now in the world, nobody is saying, stop. And not stop what you're doing, but let's get some perspective Let's look and see what's going on around us and actually care about people, right? Not, not perceived needs, but actual needs. And so the one truth I think the church has been totally silent about, Oprah and Maya Angelou get. <laughs> right? This is the first time you'll, and the last time you'll ever hear me say this. I like Maya Angelou a lot. Uh, but uh, before that, I, this is what I, I thought that I kind of understood this whole thing about self-realization and self-determination. And then uh, I was at a church camp, which will go unmentioned. And this is a bumper sticker that I saw on one of the leaders of the church camp. If, how do I do this? Do I have to turn turn it back on? Okay. That didn't sound good. Yeah, there it comes. Charles, oh, here it goes, okay. So just when I thought I had it all figured out, I don't. Um, I understand. Oh, there it is, okay. So this is, um, this is, this is the bumper sticker that I saw. Life isn't about finding yourself, which is bad enough. Life is about creating yourself. Uh, Lord have mercy. My kids wouldn't get dressed in the morning if I I allowed uh, that sort of nonsense. Or if somebody comes into my office and says, uh, this is what I'm dealing with. Uh, This is what I'm struggling with. And I said, well, 
whatever makes you happy, just go ahead and do it. Or, or you, know, you know what, I really can't help you. It's really about you finding your own way forward and creating for yourself whatever new reality that you would like to live in. That, that is, that's spiritual abuse is what that is. Uh, but, uh, and I like that in parentheses it says unknown. I'm going to get one that says clueless, right? Uh, um, <laughs> I, um, I mean, how long do you have to, I mean, wherever that person lives, that's where I want to live. Right? Because clearly they're not, uh, they're not really in touch uh, with life. Uh, so the one, the, the great truth that... Um, and I'm going to have to parse some of this out because she does say some things that, that she shouldn't say. Uh, but um, this is uh, the revelation that changed Dr. Maya. Where is my thing? There, Maya Angelou's life. Super Soul Sunday. You say words of things and that they're so powerful. So what words do you turn to for comfort? Love. And again, see, I don't mean... I think, I think love is that condition in the human spirit so profound that it allows us to forgive. Mm-hmm. And it, it may be the energy which keeps the stars in the firmament. Yes. I'm not sure. It may be the energy which keeps the blood running smoothly through our veins. I'm not sure. But it's something beyond the explanation. It can be used for anything you can't explain, any good thing you can't explain. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Where do you go for solace, for comfort? Are there books that you read? Or when Maya Angelou needs comforting, yes. yeah. What, yes. do, what do you use? I, I'm a student of unity. And there's a book called the Unity Church. Unity yeah. Church. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll sort Maya this first discovered the Unity Church in her 20s after her voice coach and mentor, Fred Wilkerson, invited her to a service there. Founded in 1889, Unity is a Christian movement that emphasizes affirmative prayer and education as a path to spirituality. I took a course in Unity about two years ago online, not to become a member, a minister, Mm -hmm. but just to understand more deeply. There's a book called Lessons in Truth. Wow. And in the book, there's a line, which is, God loves me. And when I came to read it to my then mentor, Frederick Wilkerson, uh, the late Frederick Wilkerson, Mm -hmm. I read, God loves me. And he said, read it again. I said, God loves me. He said, read it again. Read it again. And finally, I said, God loves me. It still humbles me that this force, which made leaves and fleas and and stars and rivers and and you, loves me. Me, Maya Angelou. It's amazing. I can do anything and do it well. Any good thing, I can do it. That's why I'm who I am. Yes, because God loves me and I'm amazed at it. And grateful for it. Brought to you by Harpo Studios. Um, well, uh, 
Maya Angelou is in the right library. She's just looking at the wrong shelf. And, uh, but she gets it, right? She understands that her identity and, and who she is uh, is grounded in God's disposition towards her, right? And she said that. She said I, she doesn't understand herself apart from the truth that God loves her. And you can't really see it, but she's weeping. She's weeping. And I wish Oprah weren't there because she kind of gets in the way with a, ooh, yeah. And, um, <laughs> right. uh, but Maya Angelou gets it because she realizes how uh, most people, how trivial, uh, how trivialized the, 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 the phrase God loves you is and what that means and the deep implications that that has uh, on the life of of a human being. And so for Maya Angelou, when she not only heard that truth, uh, but when she appropriated it and understood that God loved Maya Angelou, her whole life changed. And any identity that she, any concept of self-realization, self-determination, self-fulfillment went out the window. It went completely out uh, the window And there was no need for her to try to validate herself to anybody, uh, no need uh, to prove herself to anybody, uh, no need to shout at the top of her lungs about anything because the great truth was that God loved her no matter what. And she realized that God wasn't about, or life wasn't about choices. If it is about choice, it's about one choice, and that is God has chosen you. And that means everything. And so what Maya Angelou gets, and what I hope Oprah is able to uh, read, mark, and inwardly digest, is the conversation, the church's job in the midst of the conversation going on in the world today is it has to insert itself and undergird it with that great truth. That God loves you. And we're not objectifying anything or anybody spiritually, but because of that truth, uh, that your human potential is much greater than you could ever possibly ask or imagine when it's rooted in Jesus Christ. And the church has forgotten that. They're not overwhelmed like Maya Angelou is overwhelmed by the fact that God loves her. And what it produces is uh, humility. Uh, it actually produces insight. Uh, it produces perspective. All of those things that make a normal, healthy human being. And all of those things uh, come by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, through the truth of the gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And let me tell you, my experience and what the Bible's experience is, is that when that truth penetrates the heart of an individual, you have to wor- you can stop worrying about a lot of other things. Right? But it's a tale as old as, uh, as time when uh, Paul, Saul, was converted on the road to Damascus. And uh, the Lord uh, spoke to the centurion and said, Now Saul is going to come to your house, and I want you to take care of him for a couple days. His response was, What are you talking about, Willis? 
Right? His response was, no, this, this, I mean, Paul then saw was on his way to Damascus in order to kidnap Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem so they could stand trial and be executed. It's not a welcome house guest, right? I know this Saul guy. I don't want anything to do with him. And how often do we sell short the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel when that message takes hold of somebody's life like it did Paul? It changed him. It changed him forever. And God sorted out all of that other stuff. And the other thing that I have to keep in mind, too, is that uh, God is in control. Um, uh, An often quoted thing in my life these days is uh, worrying is praying to yourself. Worrying is praying to yourself. And uh, just when I think the world is going to hell in a handbasket, it means that I've forgotten who Jesus is. And I know that if I uh, flip to the uh, end of the book, um, uh, how it ends, uh, how it all ends, um, where, well, God wins, right? That, that uh, every wrong has been righted and every injustice has uh, been rectified and all that was cast down and broken and old has been made new. And that's, that's a message that will preach. It, it, it always has. And that was the power of Paul's testimony and why Paul was able to say the things that he had because he had that perspective. He knew what it was like to be on the other side, to be so sure of himself that, that he knew what he was doing uh, when, in fact, uh, all of his life up to that point uh, was rubbish. As he Actually, he used a much stronger word. It was rubbish uh, to him. And so I hope that in the midst uh, of the world uh, around us and what's going on and the conversation that's taking place, that we can listen with open ears about people self-realizing and self-determining and, uh, and self-fulfilling, uh, but that we would see it for what it is. It's incomplete. And, and where it's incomplete creates an incomplete human being. And uh, Jesus has come that we might have life and life to the full and that we would be overwhelmed Uh, by the message of God's uh, grace and that God loves you. Questions, comments, concerns? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, um, she's uh, she's clear, she's vague about things. So she referred to God as as a force, right? But we know that. I mean, and you would think that she might get to the to that point to articulate that that God is not a force. God is personal. He's a he's a personal being that you can be in relationship with. He's not a far off creator. Yes, he created the leaves and the fleas, as she said. Uh, but he's also interested in a personal relationship. Uh, with you. That and she's involved in something called Unity School of Christianity. My grandfather was very involved in it and it's sort of a new age metaphysics. They use all the same terms but operate under different definitions and so I, I won't commend Unity School to you. But where she gets it right is the whole concept of God's overwhelming love for her and how that shapes and transforms her life. And so she's right on when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Um, well, I, I guess you could say that about everything that I've said just now. Um, and what I have, well, the thing that I will say about unity, let's open it up a little bit, is that unity is very intuitive. It's about Christ consciousness, that the whole concept in unity is trying to achieve a Christ consciousness that you actually can be like Jesus. You can actually get to a place where you are like Jesus of Nazareth, that that is a possibility. Um, the Bible doesn't teach that. Um, and I'm not talking about biblical interpretation. Just a plain reading of Scripture says that's not true, that Jesus came into this world because we can't be like that, that we're incapable of being like that, that there is, and that's a powerful message. And, and we know that intuitively as well, that love has to come from the outside if it's to transform. So um, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm being self-righteous uh, about it. I, I think it's a fair comment to say that I'm being judgmental about Unity School of Christianity, but that's because it doesn't sync with what the Bible has to say about Jesus and what the Bible has to say about salvation. They're more than welcome to disagree. I don't have any qualm with that. As long as we can have a conversation, that's, that's fine. I'm not interested in them in the saying um, uh, that, um, well, we just need to have a conversation, and, and that's fine. And so they have their viewpoint, but I, I feel pretty secure in where I am, not because of me or how I feel, but simply because of what Scripture says. If you want to know my opinion on things, we're sunk. I mean, go to brunch. Everybody leave now. Run. I guess what I thought you were going to get into, and but the sovereignty of God mm -hmm. in relation to, as you started off with, what's going on in the world, I guess that's my comfort is that is your sermon and the... Yeah, God's not shocked. Isaiah says, you know, God's thoughts aren't our thoughts yeah. and his ways aren't our ways. It's right. comforting. And we always think that we live in the worst generation that's ever existed. And that's simply not true. Um, in fact, things are a lot better now if you want to look at it from that perspective than they were even at the time of Jesus and shortly thereafter. Like none of us are getting eaten by lions um, or, or thrown, you know, thrown into the Colosseum or anything like that. Um, so I, I think that uh, there are some, but the, but the message was was always uh, the same. It, it never deviated, uh, regardless of what the situation was. I think where it began to de deviate was when Christendom actually happened, when Christianity got very comfortable and it became institutionalized, and and it went from being a living, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ to being a, re a religion uh, rather than a relationship. Sort of going back to what you said about um, how sort of your judgment or, you know, just in that conversation in general mm -hmm. was more based on what Scripture said and not mm -hmm. your opinion. Um, that's been a huge life-changing thing for me um, was realizing that the Bible is there as the Word, and mm -hmm. that's really all that we have. That's the most solid thing that we have. And it's not about looking at it, you know, going back to self-realization, self-determination, self-discovery. It's not about me saying, you know, wow, this is great. You know, what, what pieces of it am I going to choose to believe? Mm -hmm. It's more about looking at the word as a whole and asking myself, do I believe this mm -hmm. in, in all that it says? And that's been huge for me, um, just, just to sort of share yeah. that, you know, I was kind of on a path of self-discovery, you know, self self-creation, 
And in the, that word in its entirety, I've been able to see that, you know, it's not about what I think about it or what my opinion is on it. It's about, and whether I believe, it's about whether I believe it as a whole. Does that make sense? It does, totally. God bless you. Thank you, God. Okay, it's it's a, like I said. I know I know I've opened up a can of worms, and um, but um, I, I think that the Advent is um, one. It's a place where there's a lot of theological inquiry. We can ask really hard questions and talk about really tough stuff. This is not some sort of like spiritual fortress, uh, although in some sense it is a ark of refuge. Uh, but um, I don't know, my conversations with a lot of people out and about, um, like guys that try to get me to put their golf bags on the back of their carts, um, uh, are about things like this. And, um, and so I think even Christians need to sort of stop and get some perspective and take stock of God's sovereignty and, um, and also uh, to put on compassion and meekness and kindness and humility um, as we minister to, to a fallen and broken world. Uh, so were uh, some of you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for loving us enough to come into this world and die for us. And we thank you uh, for the insights of uh, Maya Angelou. And Lord, that uh, we would, above all, keep our eyes focused upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, that you would indeed shield us from self-righteousness. But Lord, that we would uh, boldly proclaim you, uh, that we might decrease and you might increase, and indeed that the world might see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.